have a deep resentment towards Jimmy Fallon because one time he had Keith Richards on, maybe 10 years ago when they reissued Exile on Main Street, right? Jimmy Fallon asked Keith Richards, what's your favorite Rolling Stones record? And he said, between the buttons. And I went, oh! I like actually yelled and I went, oh my God, he's going to talk about between the buttons. And then Jimmy Fallon said, yeah, but Exile on Main Street's really great too, isn't it? And then they just talked about Exile on Main Street, which is a great record, but he's on a tour talking to everybody about Exile on Main Street. I don't think I've ever heard an in-depth interview with Keith Richards about between the buttons. And I'm like, I want to hear that interview. I want to hear, I want to seek out Keith Richards and talk to him about Between the Buttons because at some point he's not going to have any opinion about it or he's not going to remember anything about it but it was just like oh my god and and oh so every time I see Jimmy Fallon I'm just like Ugh. my guess is that Fallon had no idea what he was talking about exactly had the list what's that Between yeah. the Buttons I I don't know what you're talking about he couldn't have told you one song on there I'm sure that's why I didn't talk about it exactly but, uh, that you're right that would have been fascinating Especially since he opened that door. Okay, let's go there. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. You think uh, a comedian, right? Yes, and right. You don't. You don't put a wall up. You you follow, right? That, but I guess that's not. Yeah, he he needs to do the interview. The Marin interview with Keith Richards. You know, Marin had quit. You know, he's sober and hasn't smoked in forever. And Keith Richards is like, "Can I smoke in here?" And Marin normally says no to everybody. He's like, "Of course." And he's like, "Do you want one?" And Marin was like, "Yes." Like so, he basically, he's like, "I'm not gonna not smoke a cigarette with Keith Richards because he's a huge." huge fan of the Stones, and so it's like... You know, that sits with me, too. I remember hearing that and going, wow, you know, Mark Marin talks constantly about how he hasn't smoked for 10 or 15 years, and, like, within 15 minutes, Keith Richards has completely corrupted him and, yeah. and had him, like, go back to his old habits, and that, to me, felt a little weird. It's like, if you have yeah. that power, you know, is that what you're supposed to be using it for? You know, it's like, oh, go ahead. Start smoking again. <laughs> Hang out with me, you know, and it feels like, ooh, yeah, but he gave Marin that experience, though. Like <laughs> I, I know. Mean, I haven't. I swore I would never smoke another cigarette uh, on my marriage. I don't know if Keith Richards offered me a cigarette, I might smoke it with him. Then in my mind is, well, what other situations in Keith Richards' life has he done that same kind of thing? All the time. <laughs> I can tell you for a fact that it's. I've interviewed him before, and it's. He wants you to come into his inner sanctum and you know party with me. You know, it's like there's always a fifth sitting around and he's always wants to share it sometimes he'll offer you a glass sometimes not and you know the cigarettes and any any other chemical is probably readily within reach and uh he likes having a buddy yeah. and it doesn't matter who it is you just happen to be the the guy that's available right now you know <laughs> and all the other stones are extremely different but he's He's like a different character altogether. There's no armor up at all with that guy. It's just like he just lets you in. And, and if you piss him off, he'll probably punch you or stab you or something. But it's like <laughs> as long as you're getting along, he's, he's, a, he's a barrel of laughs. He's a, he's a funny guy, and he's also very affable. Uh, which I can't say about, you know, Mick, Mick or any of the other guys. You know, they're, they're very... They've got a wall up. Sort of with the theme of what we're talking about, Greg, isn't that awesome? Like, isn't that what you want from when you talk to an artist is to, to have that kind of a conversation with them or? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a few are, are like that, you know, who's uh surprisingly accessible or, or surprisingly just a, just a real gent, a real good guy is uh, Iggy pop. He's just a genuinely friendly person, really smart, 
Like he said, you know, critics thought we had like a 300 word vocabulary after the first Stooges album. They thought they were literally like primitive ape men. You know, they were <laughs> stupid and could barely string a sentence together. And then you talk to this guy and you realize he's, you know, extremely well-read and uh, really smart and very nice. And, you know, it's part of it, I think, is that Midwestern upbringing. I mean, when you grow up in a trailer outside of Detroit, you're, you are around a lot of regular folks, you know, and he grew up in that sort of environment where he was never felt like a rock star. But when you interviewed him, did you have to hide the broken glass and peanut butter? That's when he gets a little wild, right? <laughs> well, and then, you know, the thing is, you can have a frank conversation with, about him with that with that stuff. You realize what you're doing. You realize how dangerous it is. I mean, you talk to him like, like a, you know, okay, this isn't just an act. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you, why are you destroying yourself for people's benefit? And he goes, I think, you know, he, he would give you like a thoughtful answer. He said, I had to embody the music. He said, I am so limited as a singer that I had to figure out a way to entertain the audience because that was first and foremost. He, you know, came up in those blues clubs in Chicago. He, he spent a lot of time here and he watched those guys perform. And he said, like, you know, it's it's a performance. And if you can't deliver on one thing, you've got to over deliver on something else. So maybe it was just, you know, I think it was for him it was kind of almost overcompensating for the fact that he felt totally inadequate, you know, being up there. But it was an interesting answer. I've seen him like topple amplifiers and said, Are you aware that you could kill somebody? He goes, Yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's just like I I want to go as far as I can without doing that, you know. But it, he's very aware of the fact that he's doing some really unusual shit for a guy on on a stage. You don't have to go that far, you know, to entertain the crowd. I think he's the greatest live performer I've ever seen, though. I don't think there's anybody even a close second. Maybe David Yao, the Jesus Lizard. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Those are the two greatest. I think it's a good two. Now, see, we're just going to do all tangents. We're never going to actually talk about the film. That was that was my favorite moment really early on seeing that early Jesus Lizard show, I think, where they were throwing out the EP with the drum machine on it, right? So that was one of the earliest, you know, full with the drummer yeah. uh, shows. So it was pretty sparse at the Metro. And then a bunch of these these people from the music scene in Champaign who are a little more uh, rough than I was, like David Yao jumped into the crowd and they they separated and he you know, hit the floor like a wet fish. And then instead of picking him up, what these kids did was they held him down. They, they, they all like collectively like put their hands on him. And he was, he was like a little bug stuck on the floor just trying to get up. It was an amazing moment. Yeah. He thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever seen because he was used to, you know, jumping into the crowd. I think, yeah, he, he just cracks himself up and, and he's loaded too. So it's like, uh, you know, feels no pain. He said, I've, I've, he said, I've done things to my body that I didn't feel until the next day because I was so loaded on stage. I was at a show where he set himself on fire and I'm, I'm not kidding you. He'd like put lighter fluid on his jeans and took out a, a lighter and, and set fire to himself. And there's literally flames. I go, what were you thinking? It was, well, if you wear really tight jeans, it doesn't hurt. <laughs> Well, there's a gag we used to do at parties where we'd take a bowl of water and we'd put it on the table out in the middle of the room. And then I'd go in the bathroom and I'd spray my arm down with Lysol. And then I'd come out with a cigarette and a friend of mine would go to light the cigarette and he'd light my arm on fire. And, you know, it doesn't burn. It just burns your arm hair. And I'd just go, ah, ah, and everybody at the party would be like, this guy's arm on fire. And I'd shove it in the bowl of water, you know, after it started to get close to the skin. And then everybody would just freak out for like 10, 15 minutes after that. You're certifiably nuts. I, I finally, I'm, I'm thinking that in my subconscious right now. 
I haven't done it in 30 years. And look, it's we played with a lot of fire as kids. I, I'm I'm very capable. <laughs> you know, you 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 can control fire. You're good with fire, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We're we're not in the same room, so it doesn't matter. Welcome to Lost and Found and Rewound, a show that is mostly about the past, rarely about the future, and never about the present. I'm Chris Lost. I'm Found Jim. And I'm Rick Rewound. And we've been talking with our special guest today. Rick, do you want to introduce our guest since we've been engaging with him for a while now? Yes, yes. (laughs) Um, Our guest today is a longtime music journalist, critic, and author who just a few weeks ago celebrated the 800th episode of the radio show slash podcast Sound Opinions, which he has co-hosted for over 20 years. In addition to books on Wilco, Mavis Staples, and the Staple Singers, and the Digital Music Revolution, he has authored a book on coaching youth basketball, one of his true passions. He recently became the editorial director of the Coda Collection, a premium streaming service on Amazon Prime dedicated to music documentary and performance, which is why we asked him on the show. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about music. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Greg Cott. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks for inviting me on your show. This Coda Collection, that's what triggered in my mind asking you to come on the show is because you um, just took on this role and uh, music documentary. We do this show on VHS films that inspired us, but we always go off on tangents about music. And then when you had mentioned that you had this new gig, it was like music documentary, film, that's the kind of thing that would be great for us to talk about and have you on to talk about a music film. And so I reached out, asked you, and you said, yeah, sure. And so, Greg, what film have you chosen for us to discuss today? You know, I wanted to uh, abide by your, you know, available uh, on VHS or maybe only available on VHS rule. And that would be, uh, ladies and gentlemen, The Rolling Stones, which is a concert film that was made in it was of a concert that occurred in 1972 when the Stones were touring right behind Exile on Main Street and uh, was released in theaters in 1974 for a brief run. Resurfaced as a VHS in Australia, I believe. For some reason, it was very limited in terms of how widely it could be available. The Stones apparently decided to distance themselves from it. And so I saw initially in the 80s via a bootleg of that Australian DVD or I'm sorry, uh, VHS. And then finally, it was issued on DVD in like 2010. You know, it has filtered out various places, but now we're, Coda Collection actually has the exclusive streaming rights to the video. You know, we've paid for the licensing, of course. It's just an extraordinary film. I, I had not seen it since the 80s, since that bootleg copy of it on a grainy screen and seeing it kind of vividly you know, in the, its, its original form, pretty powerful stuff. I think it's the best Stones concert film by a wide margin and also a great representation of the band at its peak. This was kind of the run of great albums that they'd made right around that period when Mick Taylor joined the band, Tail End of Beggar's Banquet, and then uh, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, and Exile on Main Street. So they were they were rolling, hitting on all cylinders at that point. This was before the Stones became sort of a, a circus act, you know, the big spectacle, the giant props, the inflatable, you know, whatever, you know, on stage. Uh, they were just a band playing on stage, you know, and it Basically, it's just a, I think it's a 16 song set, uh, maybe 15 songs. They just rip right through it. I mean, it's just like boom, 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 one after another. Yeah. And that's what really struck me is, is seeing how close together they are on stage 
how it's just the band playing. Um, they do have Bobby Keys there and, and you know, the horn section. Um, but it's, it's still a band playing together as opposed to, yeah, like you said, the giant production. But even, you know, you watch a Stone's live film from any time after this, right? And they're, they're miles away from each other. They're hardly interacting. And this still feels like a band playing together. That's what I love about it. It is a band playing together. There, there's no offstage backing tapes or anything like that this is just the sound the band makes on stage and it's you know remarkably rough and rude and at the same time just energetic as hell you know they're just so into it uh you can tell in the audience is obviously into it but it's it's really the band's performance it just is hard to take your eyes off of and you realize how what a powerful thing they could be and they've sort of turned it into this greatest hits jukebox over the years and those are undeniably great songs but they were still in a period here where they were making great music and they were focusing on their new material you know they weren't playing greatest hits they were playing songs deep cuts off their new albums you know that was the show Fuck you if you don't like it, you know, because we love it. We're, it's kind of like we're proud of this record we just made and we're going to play all of it. And in the case of the Ladies and Gentlemen show, it's almost exclusively Exile tracks and Sticky Fingers tracks. They don't even play Satisfaction. Yeah. You know, which like if you go to a Stones show now and you you don't get that, you feel like you're being ripped off. Back then they were like, oh, that song's six years old. We don't want to exactly. play that. Exactly. You yeah, know? It's old stuff. I'd argue that if you go to a show, Stones show now, regardless of what they play you'd feel like you got ripped off but but that's that's just me i went to a, i've i'd never seen the stones live until two years ago just just before the pandemic i saw them in new jersey yeah and at, at the beginning of the show yeah, i was like oh this is going to be a drag because it was just kind of slow and then as the evening picked up and the show got increasingly better i kind of saw the the glimmer or the the shine of the stones come through and at the end i was like wow this is pretty damn good uh, but it was super expensive and in a football stadium, so it wasn't very intimate. The the price is so exorbitant. I can't recommend anybody go see anything for that amount. I mean, you know, entertainment. I, I if I'm paying over fifty bucks, I'm going. What is this like the second coming on Easter weekend? I suppose that's an appropriate <laughs> reference. It is one of those things where they become this this rich person's act, and they are performing for those rich people so that they can sustain the machine that has become the Rolling Stones. Although I have to say that last tour you're referencing, I saw them. They were at Soldier Field, and I was not going into that with the idea that it was going to be it was going to blow my doors off. But Jagger had just uh, taken a month off or whatever. He had had that ailment that heart heart issue yeah and i think it might have been his first show since then and he he came out like with purpose there was a moment where keith was looking at him i had a pretty good seat on the side and keith was just sort of looking at him and just kind of broke out in this huge smile because jagger was just so invested in what he was singing i mean it was not like a phoned in performance at all i was kind of like wow that was a good show these guys were really into what they were doing charlie watts was back there smiling like they were really glad to be on stage together that's all i can ask for a band the stones when they're good they can play an old song and put some new ripples in it you know they they have this kind of thing where they're kind of loose about it it's not like this really tightly structured thing and when they're doing that like keith is looking at charlie and charlie's looking at keith and ronnie's looking over at keith and they're kind of like doing this kind of weaving thing where they're everything's just sort of melting together and it's kind of haphazard and there's a few bum notes but you don't care because they don't care it's a kind of a cool thing there's that very few bands that play like that so i i kind of take it for what it is you know it's kind of this jazz blues 
influence as opposed to straight up spectacle rock show. I wish they would vary the set list more. That's just my biggest thing is that I'd love to hear more deep cuts. They have such a great catalog and I feel like they play 10 or 12 songs that are like they have to play. They feel like they have to play those every every set. And that's when it gets kind of old for me. And you're right about the distance on the stage. It just feels very remote. But when they get in a little circle and they play together, it's like when Neil Young and Crazy Horse sort of huddle around that drum riser, you know, it's that same. Oh, yeah, it's a real band. I love that about ladies and gentlemen. It felt like they were the Blue Angels at times, like they would sort of get into this diamond formation and they just sort of really be enjoying one another's company. And I was like, I wonder how often that happens now. I mean, maybe it still does. I maybe I'm being a little cynical about it, but I'd never seen any Stones uh, live film. So I watched, ladies and gentlemen, I watched uh, Let's Spend the Night Together and I watched Gimme Shelter this week. Uh, just to kind of get some perspective on, you know, three different performances. Uh, while they were all good and had their their merits, Ladies and Gentlemen was just, it was intimate. It was playing all those songs that they had just recorded. So I, you wonder as an audience member, were they disappointed or were they picking up on the fact that, no, this is some of the best Stones songs ever written and you're getting a very rare peek into that, you know, seeing them play this stuff a way you'll never see them play it again because then they're going to have to start doing the Greatest Hits tours at some point. But yeah, it was it was awesome. Well, you have to realize that they were a contemporary act when they were playing, right? So that's that's I think the big difference, right? Is that not that the Stones aren't you know still making new music and everything like that, but that the the weight of the past gets overwhelming at some point. But if you're in the audience and it's a band that's been you know put out a record every year for the past three or four years, the biggest band in the world at the time or the greatest rock and roll band in the world at the time, I think you have to realize that, oh, no, it's not this kind of thing where it's like, oh, they didn't play Satisfaction. All the all that dynamic didn't exist until a few years later, right? And and so, right. so for the audience, I bet, bet it's amazing because it's like, this is the Rolling Stones, this is a contemporary thing. And so it's really hard. Like, when I think of the Rolling Stones as a contemporary act, it would be when Some Girls came out, right? That's when that was new music, right? The Some Girl stuff. Everything else before then is old music, was old music mm -hmm. to me, right? It was oldies. Being able to experience a band in their prime when they're still a contemporary band, I guess you would call it, as opposed to a nostalgia act. And it's, I guess it's unfair to call the Rolling Stones. I, I feel bad saying that, but that is what they are, right? It's, oh, it's yeah. just what no, happens. I mean, I, I think they would even have to own up to that. I mean, that, that's what they are. I'll always ask them about it. You know, Richard's always said, we got to play the songs that Jagger wants to sing. It really comes down to that. Mm -hmm. He's got to feel, and then he feels like if he doesn't give them the hits, he says the, the worst thing that can happen is a, it's a dead audience. They don't respond to the deep cuts. They respond to start me up. You know, it's like if I hear that song one more time, it's like, I'd, I just want to go die in a corner somewhere, you know, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm looking at this set list here. They do this version of uh, Sweet Virginia. I haven't heard them do that song in decades. And I, it just sounds so great. I mean, yeah. it, it's just like, man, they're, you know, Keith and Mick are facing off on that microphone and they're singing harm. I mean, Keith singing harmonies with Keith, with Mick, that doesn't happen anymore either because they got the big backing chorus, you know? But those two guys, their voices, I mean, Keith looks like he just got in a fight and walked in off the street and just started singing. He doesn't barely knows what the song is. Oh, I heard I heard it one time. I'll I'll, I'll chime in on the chorus the next time through. There's something really cool about that. That sort of off the cuff, ragged guys on the porch just singing songs together. You know, I love that vibe. I like the like a uh, happy too. Yeah. Well, I like oh, Sweet yeah. Virginia too. That was great. But yeah, and then with him. How how many times has he sung that song? Or you know that even on the records, it's like I always wished 
there were more songs, you know, more Keith songs that he actually sang. And are, are there only two? I mean, how many? I don't know that many Rolling Stones. I don't know their catalog well enough, but there are not many that he sang, right? Just he sings himself. a different one in Let's Spend the Night Together. It's not happy, but it's, it's great, too. It's yeah. great. That's what I loved about this version of Happy, because from what I remember, all the other concert films are just the concerts I've seen. It's like that's, that's when Keith sings and then Mick goes off and rests or, you know, changes outfits. Whereas in this performance, they're singing together. And that's right. where all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, that's infinitely better. All respect to Keith Richards and everything like that. But there's something super powerful when the two of them are singing, like you were saying with Sweet Virginia, where it's just like, okay, this is, this is really yeah. magical. Because you also feel a little bit of tension where it's just kind of like, Mick, you know, you don't have to, you can, you can back off a little bit, right? But it feels like there, he's still like, I still got to be here. But, he's st- but it, it does push the song over the yeah, top. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. You know, I asked Keith once what how do they decide who's singing the song? And he says, usually it's like we'll be doing the song and it's time for the vocal to come in and, and Mick just sits there. And that's his sign like he doesn't want to sing this one. <laughs> so I, I guess I gotta do it. And I agree with that to an extent. It's kind of like, okay, I'm not into this one, but you got you can take it. You know, and it's like I miss that aspect of it and that, and that sort of uh, it, intimacy. You know, we were talking about the set list, too, and you mentioned some girls. That was the first time I'd seen the band, 78, at Soldier Field. I was uh, in college. We had literally had the last seats in the house. So, like, um, Keith and Mick were, like, the size of ants. But we were in the farthest point you could be away from the stage. Get this, opening X, Journey, Steve Perry first run around with the band the lights go down in the city or whatever that song was they were starting to get some chart action but they had Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes as the opening band then Journey then Peter Tosh wow and I think Mick actually came out and sang with him don't walk and don't look back or something like that they had like a single out so it was it was a pretty cool day but anyway their set list consists of nine of the ten songs on some girls wow so they wow. basically played the entire album and it had been out less than a month. Wow. And I bought it like right away. I was a big Stones freak and I, you know, me and my friends, we were like all over this record and we played it to death. So we knew that record inside and out. We loved the record. We were hoping they'd play some cuts. They ended up playing just about the whole thing. And people are leaving the <laughs> yeah. stadium and they're going, that sucked. <laughs> that sucked. Where was he? They were already pining for like why weren't there more hits from the the 60s or something like that and they played some of those songs you know the whole set list was not was not those songs it was like all this new stuff that they were laying on then i interviewed jagger once like years later and i said you know i said why don't you play your new stuff anymore and he gave me the answer about you know i want the audience to be responding i said you used to play your new albums front to back he goes really and then i'm like yeah i saw you guys play basically the entire some girls album and he goes, no, we never did that. <laughs> and, then, and then there's like a book. There's a really good book that uh, has every Stones concert date and every set list from those shows. And I looked it up just to think, was I high? I was high, but I know I know what I saw. Yeah. Well, lo and behold, there it is. It's nine of the ten songs on Some Girls on that day in Chicago. And I looked at the set list for the rest of that tour. Half the set list was Some Girls. So you will never see, you haven't seen that probably since that era. Yeah, that's the turning point, right? Yeah, that right. was probably when, and that's why Mick, pro- he's probably blocked it out. It's just like, I, you know, it, it might have been a painful experience because that's always, you know, the, the most dangerous time for a band is, is playing the new songs. And then, right. yeah, if you're a stadium band, it's a hard choice to make. Either you go, okay, we're just not going to play 
the songs everyone wants to hear or we're going to play what everyone wants to hear and continue flying around in our jets. <laughs> you know, there was a Built to Spill tour uh, that I saw before they got stripped back down to uh, three piece, but he was playing with Caustic Resin, I think was the name of the band that he kind of uh, commandeered. I went to, I think, two or three shows on that tour because on that tour, they all knew all the songs and every set list was different. So if you liked Built to Spill and were in on the entire catalog, it was an incredible experience because every show was different, tons of deep cuts. You wouldn't have guessed, you know, what they were playing. And they're not playing any of the hits, I guess, you know, the, the most popular songs off the records because they didn't really have radio hits. But And I remember thinking, now I know why people follow bands around because if bands operate in this mode, you know, I tried to, I, I travel for a living and I tried to travel to as many cities as I could to try and catch the next show because I just knew it wouldn't be the same show. Uh, but I think that that's a very esoteric or I don't know how to describe it, but it's a very sort of, it, you're catering to a much smaller demographic when you do that because it's just fanboys who know all your stuff and just want to see you play live. I mean, that's a great example, but I mean, look at the Grateful Dead. They played stadiums and they never played the same show twice either. I mean, it was a completely different set every night. Whatever you think of the band, I admire that a lot. They kind of set a template for uh, a number of bands today that are, are following it. Whatever you think of Pearl Jam, they don't play the same set twice. It's pretty much a different show every night. So there's bands like that and their their fans love them for that reason. I followed Springsteen around in 78 uh, when I was had the ability to do that because I couldn't get a job. So I was just following bands around and you know Springsteen played a bunch of small arenas in the Midwest and in, in uh, after Darkness on the Edge of Town came out and that was one of the best tours I'd ever seen by any band. I mean I'm a, I'm not a huge Springsteen fan anymore, but I was back then and those tours were amazing. There was truly an element of improvisation every night. Like it was a lot of stuff was being made up as it went along and i also was at a show in 75 that he did at the riverside in milwaukee my freshman year in college there, there was a, a bomb scare mm. so they went across the street to a hotel we all went there the band got drunk at the bar and they finally let us back in at midnight after like a four-hour delay so everybody's lit and late, later i found out Springsteen can't hold his liquor so they play a four-hour show and they literally call out the set list throughout the whole show it was a totally he starts like let's 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 play Wilson Pickett, uh, you know, midnight hour. Start the show. It's like, and it it went from there. It was completely like we're in a bar and it's just us and our buddies playing together, you know. And it's like it was so cool. But that sort of element of spontaneity, I think it takes effort to do that every night. And when you're sort of building your show around a spectacle as opposed to a musical event, it makes that sort of off the cuff thing almost impossible. Kansas City. Food-wise, a city famous for its barbecue, but that's about to change. My name is W. Dave Keith, host of the podcast Taco the Town, and I believe that Kansas City is one of the most underrated, underappreciated, up-and-coming taco towns in the USA. On Taco the Town, we will shine a light on all the amazing tacos Kansas City has to offer. Kansas City is a great taco town filled with a variety of untapped taco stylings and flavors, 
And on the Taco the Town podcast, we won't stop until we've tasted every taco in the town. No taco table will go unturned. Each episode, we review a new taco joint with a special guest. We share taco memories, discuss taco topics, and put tacos to the test. We check the latest stories in taco news, and no taco is off the table on Taco the Town. If you love tacos, like I do, you're going to love Taco the Town. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and Google Play. That's Taco the Town. Like literally Pink Floyd would have like an X marked on the stage at a certain time in the show where David Gilmore had to stand on that spot and do this exact same thing for three minutes because everything, the visual, the visuals, the lights was all synced up for that precise moment. And every moment would be choreographed like that. What is that? That's not a rock show anymore. It's kind of like something. It's theater, right? Yeah. yeah. It's so it's cats yeah, yeah. or something. <clears throat> a rob, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't dislike this spectacle, though. I, I saw Roger Waters a couple of years ago, and I kind of loved it. The whole inflatable flying things and the screens. And <laughs> and I actually saw uh, David Gilmore, I think, the same year at the Hollywood Bowl. And it was very rehearsed, too. It's got its place, but you're right, Rick. It's theater. You're not going to see a band and enjoy the energy of a live band. You're going to see a fantastic spectacle. It's almost like you're just listening to the record with a light show, which isn't why I go to live performances. I actually want to see what you're describing, Greg, which is the band interacting with one another, which is what this film was. I thought was that, you know, you get, you're really seeing them play together and, and play stuff that they're proud of together. They, yeah. They, uh, include the uh, like mistake you know whatever what is it uh, tumbling dice right like or jumping jack flash or, or something there are a couple mistakes they blow the ending yeah they, 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 it's great that they in, include in this that film. but it's like yeah. keith storms back and i don't know if he's mad at charlie or saying it was my fault because he yeah it's like he, he keeps playing and almost everybody else stops and and but it's great that they yeah they include it in the film too it's like yeah there are definitely so. a few moments where a song starts and then they're out of sync and you see that moment where the band there's tuning you know all that stuff yeah. that gets cut <laughs> out of concert films now and yeah that's part of what i liked about the film is it was in a weird way so i i don't think you can talk about this film without talking about let's call it cs blues right which is kind of the alter ego of this film right from the same tour i'm i'm assuming the robert frank uh -huh. film right uh -huh. and um but in a way, it's it's kind of this, the ladies and gentlemen is kind of a cinema verite exercise also in that you do get all of those moments of in between, you get the mistakes, even though I guess there's a song that was left out because it was so badly out of tune. I do feel like I was at a concert and all of the weird down moments or the mistakes and everything like that and a little bit of confusion all that stuff is in there that's what i enjoyed about it is because i realized also like watching i think the last live stones thing i watched was the martin scorsese one which i kind of enjoyed and had one of those moments i remember i think i had my headphones on and i was watching and, and i almost felt like i was in the band and then there was a moment where i thought i saw like mick look at keith and ronnie and like everything it was like the ship was starting to 
to tip over, you know, it's like they're, they're about to fall off. And then all of a sudden it came back. But it was like I could feel that moment like when you're in a band where it's just like, oh, oh, we're about to fall off. We're losing the thread, guys, you know, that kind of feeling. And I had that moment, which was great. But really, most of the time you feel that that kind of clean performance and they've edited out all the extra stuff unless they're intentionally putting it in to, you know, make you think that, you know, this is, oh, it's like a real concert, but it feels very you know, structured and, and performed as opposed to this film, which felt really realistic. Yeah, no doubt. It's interesting what you're saying about the Robert Frank movie, that that was another one that they quashed. You know, that was initial attempt at filming that tour, and uh, they were never going to let that come out, although it's all over YouTube. I guess you can watch it just about any time you want. You know, I think it's a, it's somewhat overstated about how, you know, debauched it is, but it um, most bands would never allow a camera to depict that sort of thing. But back then, that was the last of that thing where you just got this kind of very real visceral window into that world. Um, you know, I'm thinking of like uh, the Dylan movie, Don't Look Back. Exactly. I can't even imagine uh, a rock star today allowing, at the height of his like fame, allowing that sort of depiction because, you know, Dylan can come off like a jerk in that movie. I watched that film recently for the first time and it was not a flattering depiction of Bob Dylan and I was pretty surprised. Yeah, I think it's a dangerous film because I think young musicians can watch that film and get a really bad impression on how you're supposed to behave. <laughs> I sound like, like, a, <laughs> like a grandmother, but it, it's like, wow, this is, this is like a template. Like, if you're Bob Dylan in 1965, this is fine. But if you're Joe Schmo in Bloomington Normal 2021, this is not a template. That's what I love about the film, though, too, is that, yeah, it's like, wow, this is almost like a dangerous person. <laughs> Right? Like not physically dangerous, like like societally and culturally dangerous, right? You can feel that. And he's actually, you know, has some power and also can mess with people and has the freedom to do so. But also you enjoy it. You know, it's like, you know, it's kind of like Keith Richards corrupting you with a cigarette. I also feel that way when I watch Don't Look Back. It's like, wow, this is this is really attractive, like to be that person. It would be really great to be able to be that person. Well, that, so Greg, we, we, we told you we were having some dark conversations before, and I'm not going to share any specifics, but we were basically talking about how music and being in bands and stuff sort of can lead to bad behavior or exercising bad behavior. What is your opinion of that? I mean, obviously the world is changing and I'm sure the tolerance for that type of behavior, but for decades, let's say from the, the 60s forward, debauchery, trashing hotel rooms, dating 13-year-old girls, treating people like trash, being a narcissist, all of this stuff was a part of the persona. And then, you know, there were all the people who didn't make it to the level to where that's tolerated. And we, our conversation was about those folks who are really struggling with life now because they just couldn't get out of that mindset of trying to be one of these damaged and damaging musicians. But y any take on on your observations of how that has ha how that formed and whether it'll continue? The sex, drugs, rock and roll thing, you know, that was perpetuated for forever when I was young. That was supposed to be the way you were supposed to be. You know, it was kind of like this is the image that we have made for these people. And, you know, there was a transgression is a really appealing concept to a 15 year old. You know, it's like, wow, he's breaking all the rules and getting away with it. That's exciting. But the older you get, the more you realize how horrible, you know, the self-destructive behavior is. I had a few conversations with Buzz of the Melvins, you know, over the years, and he's just brutal about even Cobain, you know, just thinks what, what a bunch of idiots, you know, these people with the heroin habits and, you know, just excessive lifestyles. I mean, they, these great bands that destroyed 
the great thing they had going because they couldn't handle whatever and they took drugs or they abused people or they became assholes, you know, sometimes all of the above. It's an indulgent industry that the, the money machine keeps rolling as long as you keep bringing in the money. With Dylan, I think you saw the start of a pressure cooker, like he was really feeling besieged and that perhaps didn't come across as clearly as it might have been in his defense in that movie because, you know, he's constantly jousting with everybody in his life and you get a sense of the fact that he was feeling like surrounded on all sides. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I think there's an accounting coming. I mean, you know, the Me Too stuff has been, it's caused me to reassess a lot of things too. You know, I, I just the way we took for granted a lot of stuff and that whole art versus artist debate. I'm, I'm pretty much haunted by that for every year I've ever been an adult. It's like, that is really like, okay, do I really support Miles Davis, David Bowie? They did these not so nice things. Am I supposed to just overlook that and in listening to their music? Some artists I've drawn the line at, I just can't, I can't stomach it anymore. I just can't bother to listen to their music anymore. And because of their behavior, I think there's more of an accounting going on than ever. And I would say a lot of people are having that where stuff that used to be sort of brushed away now doesn't get brushed away as much, which I think is probably healthy. I've met enough people in music who are decent people that you realize you don't have to be an asshole to make great music, you know, great art. And some people, sometimes that goes hand in hand with their art. They're this kind of like weirdly driven individual that if they hadn't music, hadn't had music, what would they have become? You know, it's almost that dire. Like the music literally saved this person's life. Otherwise they would have been a disaster. So yeah, I think you have to take it on a case by case basis, but I I, I appreciate the fact that people are thinking about it more than ever. It seems that way anyway. That leads to my, my big question, my bombshell question here, which is like when this movie started out and Brown Sugar started playing and honestly, Sticky Fingers is one of my favorite records. I listen to it forever. I'm oddly enough, I'm not a lyrics person. Like, you know, and I'm listening to the melody, I'm listening to the instruments. You know, at some point, I started listening to lyrics and I'm like, wow, okay. And so my big question was, is there a reckoning for the Rolling Stones? Is there going to be a a cancel point, you know, for them? Because there is a lot of problematic stuff, not just behavioral, but lyrical and, you know, subject matter. And I'm just wondering, is is that something that's going to happen? Is it going to happen the next time they go on tour? Or is it something that we we forgive them for some reason and we're, they're still getting a pass? And I'm, I'm curious about everybody's thoughts about that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, Bron Sugar aside, I mean, that's a terrible, the lyric. And, and you know, he, he hasn't been singing that particular line yeah. uh, anymore. I, I think he has altered that Jagger I'm talking about. Yeah. So they're aware of like this. Yeah, this is kind of they were trying to be typical stones like, you know, like, let's push the button, you know, let's push your buttons and let's see how far we can take this. I love Stray Cat Blues until I figured out what it was about. And it was like, oh, that's kind of creepy. Not kind of. It is creepy. And it's like, but it, at the same time, it's kind of a cool song. I feel the same way about some of Ice Cube's music. You know, it's like, I really like that America's Most Wanted record, but there's stuff on that album that I have real problems with. It's interesting how the Stones have sort of negotiated that. The 70s, it was a horrible decade for everybody talks about the rise of feminism. Music industry wasn't uh, promoting the rise of feminism at all. I remember the Black and Blue record came out and I was still just a kid. But then I saw the advertising for it. And I don't know if you guys, you guys are probably too 
too young to remember any of this, but there used to be like ads taken out promoting that record of a woman tied up, her legs splayed, and black and blue bruises all over her body. And I'm just like, that's an ad campaign for a Rolling Stones record. Somebody at a record company approved that ad and said, yeah, let's go with this. And then, you know, you know, Richards with that line, you know, when they had the Some Girls record, why did you call it Some Girls, Keith? And Keith goes, because we couldn't remember their effing names. Yeah. You know, I mean, that was his response to an interview question. It's like... And and this is the thing is I remember when some girls came out being in Chicago like Jesse Jackson you know was very public and saying this is inappropriate there's inappropriate stuff on this record we need to call them out and that was 1978 yeah it's just something we're going to be battling with I, my theory is is that we understand that the Rolling Stones are I don't know we know that they're not they don't mean it maybe or that they're they're singing this because they they want to push the edge, but does that mean they endorse it? I don't know. It's it's really interesting to me because it's it's like I feel like there's ample opportunities for people to get up in arms. Like the black and blue advertising campaign. I, I don't remember it, but I remember seeing somebody writing about it, right? And yeah. so whether or not that reckoning's coming for them or they've just become so institutionalized where it's just kind of like this giant ocean liner and it's very hard to dent it in any way. There are several generations of uh who've gotten a pass because that was the, it was okay back in that day. Nobody really blinked an eye. It wasn't really a big issue. You think about the band like the Stones, you know, you know, they had songs like Stupid Girl and Under My Thumb. I mean, they were writing misogynistic songs almost from day one, as soon as they, Keith and Mick started writing together. I think a lot of it comes from a place of anger and unfiltered anger. And I think it's genuine in some ways. Uh, I think they were also listening to a lot of blues songs where there was a lot of nastiness going on. I mean, Good Morning Little Schoolgirl, you know, that's actually a playful blues song, yeah. but it's playful about some really creepy stuff. And there's a lot of blues songs about killing your woman because she done you wrong or because I'm mad at her. You know, it's like they're coming out of that tradition. And that has gone on for decades before the Stones came along. And that doesn't excuse it. I'm just saying that for a long time, a lot of this stuff used to get a pass because it was expressing a genuine human emotion. And, you know, I think if we go back to talking about the Stones or any band before they were a franchise, right? When I when I got into music, therapy was not common, you know, and I needed a lot of therapy, to be honest, if I'm being honest about myself back in that day. I was the guy at the party who lit his hand on fire. The truth of the matter is that the primal catharsis of being able to write and say anything you wanted and just say, hey, it's a song. It's fiction. All those songs have all those awful things in them. So do Martin Scorsese films. Films that come out today have people using the N-word. Well, that's a you know villain, so that person can say that. There's, you know, there's language that people get away with in film and TV. And, you know, I guess we go back to, well, is it the voice of the person singing the song that is saying those words? Or is it that person playing a character? And is this fictional? Poetry. Or right. It's it, not, yeah, it's not necessary. Yeah, it goes back to the Bob Dylan thing, right? It's like, you've decided who I am by, based on this voice in this song, but that's not necessarily who I am. And, and right. yeah, that, that whole idea is, is that disconnect between the artist and the art but then also is the artist speaking through their voice. And then, you know, with rock and roll or music that that you're really emotionally invested in a lot of times, you feel like that person is communicating not only what you're feeling, but what they're feeling, right? That you're making that connection and finding out that that person is not 
we, we talked about this earlier, Chris, before you were on, Greg, is, is that idea of the voice of the monster. And so that was really popular in kind of like punk rock and post-punk, you know, in the 80s and 90s, you know, speaking in this voice of a monster, but you were kind of yeah. doing a commentary on that, right? You had to understand, and in the community, you understood that when this person was talking in that voice and saying these awful things, they were bringing a, a light you know, a spotlight on these issues that weren't being talked about in the mainstream. But you listen to those songs now and you just go, this is somebody talking about a child molester. Why is that appropriate? And it's because, well, because people didn't talk about that. And this right. is how you talked about it. And it was our alternative sort of news source and reality check where it's like, there's a lot of awful things going on in the world and no one's talking about it. And so all of that gets mixed up where these artists, are, do they, are they that person or are they this other person? Are they performing? Are they speaking in the voice of the monster? And then it all gets mixed up. And then on top of it, if they get famous, they might turn into that person, you know, which they weren't before, you know, and it's... It's a good point. And I think a lot of it is like something like Stray Cat Blues. I think it's an artfully constructed song. The character is believable and scary. And again, is that is that Mick Jagger or is that a character? Is that, a, you know, there are people like that. I had a lot of conversations with Steve Albini about this, about the Big Black songs. You know, it's like, what the hell, man? <laughs> and he goes, and he basically talked about that whole idea. There's a lot of people who want to sweep this stuff under the rug. It's out there. People think like this. This is a way of kind of addressing the fact that evil exists in our world. You know, sometimes the best way to address it is to put the light on it. You know, Slayer songs too. I think Slayer gets a lot of shit for lyrics that actually tried to address some really serious issues in a way that was frightening, but also there was an, an intelligence behind it as well. So yeah, I mean, ditto for rap songs. So it's all the gangster rap stuff. The LA riots, if people had listened to gangster rap records, the LA riots might not have happened because people are going like, there's a problem in the inner city in the way that young black men are being treated by police. You know, it's just, that was the only way I knew about that shit at all because you didn't get that. It's like Chuck D was right, the black CNN. It's like CNN wasn't showing that stuff, you know? No <laughs> yeah, network news and, program was, was depicting the, the struggles of the black community except for those gangster rap records. Instead of thinking of the music as a symptom of what's wrong, you should think of it as, as evidence or revealing. It's, you right. know, not the cause of the problem. It's, it's actually revealing and exposing it and speaking the truth. And people always get it backwards. It's like, I'm hearing something that offends me. And the initial instinct is, I don't want to hear that. But the reason why it's offending you a lot of times, not no, sometimes people just offend to offend, right? Make music to offend. But in the cases you're talking about, they're actually saying, no, this is what's really happening. And the reason why you're reacting that way is because you don't want to acknowledge it. That's just been a long running frustration now in the past few years, you know, just referencing, you know, the riots in LA, right? And that was 30 years ago. And it's like being around long enough to just realize nothing's really changed that much. You know, it's like, I thought we were doing so good, you know, and then it's just realizing it's something that comes with age, I guess, where it's just like, okay, this seems all too familiar and right. and maybe we need to be talking more and hopefully we will. We should end on a lighter note. How can we... Uh... Well, I've got a shout, shout out to Ampeg V4 Amps. You oh, know? Yeah. I was lucky enough to use one for a tour or two early on in our career. And that's what I remember from this. Well, everybody seemed to be using them on this, the whole back line of the band, like bass and both guitarists are using Ampeg V4s. And that's what I remember about... I hadn't seen this before actually, you know, till this week, and but I'd seen... Give me shelter and that movie what i always remember was is it Mad madison 
square. The show before Altamont, they show a little bit the Ampeg V4 amps. And I, I just remember, well, I remember from that movie, that was the best part. It was like that, you know, it's like that show. I wish there was a whole concert of that. Well, there's an album, right? The album is that. But especially that movie, the sound was really raw. That that show, just from my recollection of that film, is from Gimme Shelter, is that was even rawer than this, this film. But it, it, it's the same amps and that uh, just made it's just like a real band and they're just it sounded loud the gimme shelter show the madison square garden just sounded like too loud but it was good it was like i bet it was really loud live but this yeah and the way that yeah just how you were saying earlier on how they're all together close together it was that too the visual but also the sound it was just sounded amazing and realizing how great mick taylor is i the thing about mick jagger is how dynamic he is and i've i've been obsessed lately with ron wood re-obsessing or whatever and i love him but i also feel like yeah and so i understand why ron wood he moves around right so so there's that dynamic there and i like it but Watching Mick Taylor play, it was just like, wow, this definitely was the peak in terms of uh, musicianship in the band. And my biggest frustration is that there's not a version of Can't You Hear Me Knocking, you know, on uh, from this tour. Or if there is, I need to find it because that's... Yeah. yeah, yeah. For some reason, they didn't play that one, but that's a great one. Yeah, Mick Taylor was... Um, he, he almost looked like he never really quite belonged in that band, though, at the same time. You could just tell. Yeah. He looked like he was in 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 the uh, like uh, almost like he should have been in Elvis's backup band with right. what he was wearing for the concert. He just had that. They kind of you know they they looked similar the clothes, but his clothes it was like the Vegas the whatever that's the way it was for the Elvis movie. It was like he could have been in the the backup band. It's his shirt. He looked good too, but it was just slightly more Elvis. He must have felt like he got run over by a truck at a certain. <laughs> it was just kind of like. How do you keep up with these guys? I, I can't imagine. I, mean, I guess he developed a heroin habit too, and everything, and while while with the Stones, you know, like everybody mm-hmm. did, even Charlie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's actually I got to mention uh, in tandem with this, uh, you're mentioning Coda Collection. We've got the Ladies and Gentlemen movie, but there's a, two other really cool little little films uh, that are part of that collection of Stone stuff from that era. And there's a rehearsal before that tour. That's pretty amazing. It's like they're doing like six songs. It's like 25, 30 minutes long. And it's just it's just them in a room, like a little theater practicing for the tour. So they're going through some songs and they actually do like a couple of extended blues jams and they do a couple of actual songs. But it's kind of like just them interacting. And it's fascinating to see because they're so um, they're relaxed, but they're really into it. like Charlie's closing his eyes when he's playing, like he's feeling the vibe. They're like getting this groove going and it's like very hypnotic and cool. And then um, there's another they only did a, like a handful of uh, shows in England right after Sticky Fingers came out. So this is like a year before this. And one of the last ones was taped. It was like a, a club show. They did it like at the Marquee, I think, in London. And it's like a 30-minute show of them doing like fresh material. And it's another really intimate kind of look at the band during this period of time. And it's um, pretty cool to see that stuff. I mean, they really were a functioning unit. They they played together. They got better together. They worked up songs together. They were just like, it was a glorious period of time. Despite all the decadence, their music was just at such a high level at that point that it's almost like anything you can get your hands on from that era is like worth checking out. Do you know the names of those things, Greg? Or how would we search to find them? Just go to the Coda channel and... I've got some stuff here that I... Because I'm writing about it for the Coda collection. The Rolling Stones uh, Rialto Theater 1972 rehearsals. 
that's the one that I referenced just right before the, the ladies and gentlemen tour. So they do like hip shake, which I don't think they did on that tour. That was from exile. And then they do love and cup, which I don't think they did either. So those are like two tracks that they never actually played on that tour that are from exile. Plus some jammy stuff, which is, oh, there's a long couple of long takes on tumbling dice too. Kind of cool. And then there's the Rolling Stones from the Marquee, which was from late 71. That was the right before the exile period begins. They basically left England after that, didn't play England for a number of years for tax purposes. So that's why they ended up decamping to, you know, Nelcote in France for the exile recording. That's a pretty cool set list, too. And that's got Live With Me as an opener, mm. Dead Flowers. With Mick and Keith on the mic together. That's cool. I Got the Blues, another raggedy kind of ballad you don't hear live much. They do a Chuck Berry cover, of course, Let It Rock. Midnight Rambler, Satisfaction, Bitch, Brown Sugar. That's a set list for that. It's cool because it's, again, very tight stage. Uh, just those guys together up there. Yeah, when I saw them in Jersey, I, I know they played Monkey Man, which was pretty exciting because I love that song. And then I think they played Dead Flowers. The one thing that amazed me, just the last last little thing, is that you know I looked up the, the dates for these shows. And so they played two shows over two days in Texas that this was filmed. And so they yeah. were doing, like he mentions, like a Sunday afternoon show, Why Aren't You All in Church? And that's right. just the idea that they, they played four shows in two days, which right. is, is astounding to me to realize that they were able to pull that off. Yeah. You know. And then Stevie yeah. Wonder not showing up. Something must have happened with Stevie Wonder. So that's the one thing about uh, the Robert Frank film is the footage in that film of them with... Stevie Wonder sort of jamming um, on stage is probably the best live performance I've seen with them. That's the one where it's like with the full band, the horns and everything like that. Yeah, yeah. And Stevie's there and that's amazing. And so that's one thing that I would love to see more is like if there was any crossover. Also just realizing the Rolling Stones were great right then, but like seeing footage of Stevie Wonder's band, I think on Sesame Street during that time is astounding. Yeah. It's like realizing the level of performance that was going on in that era with some of these bands and then to have a show that Stevie Wonder and his band and then the Rolling Stones would have been overwhelming. The I Can Tina Turner performance in Gimme Shelter is pretty awesome and they're yep. watching it and I mix comments like it's good to have a girl around every once in a while or something like this. Some some sort of offhanded comment. I'm like, man, she kind of blew away every perform every Stones performance I'm seeing. Reminded me of the Who in Rock and Roll Circus, just kind of just blowing away the stones. So I'd imagine Stevie probably did the same thing. Prince Oh, but did, did Greg, were you, did you get to see when Prince opened for the Stones? I was so neck deep in, in punk at that point that I just, I couldn't even think about seeing a big bloated rock band on a, on a stage that size. It was like, you know, minor threat or die. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> exactly. I think, I think having an intense small club experience, I mean, that happened to me where it was just like, wow, I don't think I can watch a performance in a, in a big arena ever again it kind of ruined it it's like once you have those intense you know small club experiences it's it's hard well unless unless you have an intense small club experience that you don't enjoy right i could see plenty of people be you know crammed into a tiny club loud music and go i never want to do this again but for me it was it was overwhelming and it was just like oh my god like there is no reason to be in a space with more than 100 people watching music <laughs> Right. Yeah. I missed all out on all that. I never, that was the first concert I went to was, was, you know, like, well, like the Aragon ballroom or something like the Smiths, I think, you know, and I, I never, that was, the, the, it's a pretty big place, but I, yeah, I've, to this day, I don't, I've never really been to a arena rock show. Even my mom has seen the stones at <laughs> Alpine Valley 
and I, I've never, never saw the stones, but she, she, she was the, sort of the same thing. Well, it was like she had never been, this was probably 30 years ago, yeah, maybe 25 years ago. She went with our neighbors and their kids, and it was like, I want to go too. I want to go to this big rock show and see the stones, and she did. And, if but, ACDC ever goes back on tour, Jim, we have to go, because they were, I've seen them several times in the last 10 years, and like still incredible. First show where I kind of got the, where I gave up on, ever going to a stadium show for a while was Flaming Lips 1988 Oh My God tour with the old drummer. And that actually was a, an odd mixture of spectacle and a band sort of doing, because they had like the tractor trailer truck lights on the top of their amps. The bass player sort of controlled the coconut bubble machine and all that stuff from this like little foot thing that he had rigged together. But then they were just a punk band playing, you know, post-punk, you know, acid rock. And I was just like, holy shit, I could stand... I can touch the sky and I'm watching something that is far more powerful than the Pink Floyd show I saw a year ago on, you know, momentary lapse of reason tour. I was like, uh, I think I'm, I'm done. You know, that was right in a time where I'm just like, this doesn't sound anything at all like black flag. You know, it's like <laughs> not interesting. And it's like, I don't know. I, and, and not to be a snobby, I was pretty snobby back then. Patty Smith and all that stuff. I love that shit. And it's like everything else sounded fake to me. And uh, the stadium shows in particular, I thought, were the height of, it was just bullshit. And, you know, I, I reviewed hundreds of stadium shows as a critic for the trip. I understand what they were trying to do and I respect what they were trying to do. But I, I can count that on one hand how many times I felt like a real rush at one of those shows. And like, if I'd see like, like Iggy at the Riviera, let's say, or Jesus Lizard at Cubby Bear, which I said, you know, I saw a bunch of times. Husker Du, Minutemen. I mean, those were the bands that were just like, God, these guys, these guys are amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, the moment that I became a critic at the trip was uh, when I saw 11th Dream Day in 1988 and they were playing Batteries Not Included, which had like a six inch stage. And I was like a foot away from Baird Figgy while the guy was sweating up a storm in his it was 100 degrees in that club or something like that. And they were playing basically the, the first album. I was just like, God, this is amazing. Totally blew my doors off. And then I walked up to Rick Rizzo after the show and I said, listen, I'm a, I work for the trip. I'd love to write an article about you guys. And he was kind of like, yeah, okay, man, whatever. And it's like, <laughs> you know, like I was just totally bullshitting him. And uh, he gave me his number. I called him. I said, yeah, I really want to do an article on you guys. And that was my first published article in the in the trip. Oh, that's awesome. I, I never looked back. But I mean, it was literally a club show. I felt like nobody knows about these guys. Why don't? Why isn't anybody talking about them? Watching them was amazing. I just remember, I can't remember what the 11-minute long song was, but like Rick tossing his guitar in the air and everything like that. And it's like I had seen like the kids are all right or something, right? I'd seen people yeah. get, you know, like kind of the simulation of intensity and like electricity at a live show, but to actually be there when things were getting unhinged and loud and overwhelming and it being in a small space and you could feel everything and you could, you know, make eye contact with the people on stage. It, yeah, it's just those those moments are so, so incredible. And it's, yeah. yeah, it's frustrating that not more people get to enjoy those moments or, or, yeah, understand it. Yeah. Or don't want to, or, or don't whatever. Want to. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They miss out on it. They, I, I think they think rock, rock is meant to be at the United Center and it's just, yeah. that's just not, you know. Yeah. I feel for those artists, but I, I'll, because I, you know, would love to them have gotten their due you know, more so than a lot of these people that continue to make millions and billions, but it is an oral history that we all share. Now we can tell, I can tell stories of Jad Fair 
playing a guitar that was never plugged in the whole show and then jumping off the six inch stage and jumping around everybody's table because there was only 30 people in the place. And like, that's something that I wish Jad Ferrer had taken home $60,000 that night. But, you know, <laughs> the fact that I was there to see him treat that situation that way, and then, you know, it makes me feel a little different when there's only five people at my show. It's like, well, Jad Ferrer, you know, he dealt with it in such a positive way. Like, why wouldn't anybody go at it that direction? And and I just love that I can have that story. You know, I can tell that story and people, some people will get it, some people won't. Like, But again, I, I, I wish that Jad had gotten a pile of gold for the the magic that he shared with me that night. Well, I think your your attention and the fact that you're talking about it now is probably worth something to him. You know, the people who are there aren't going to forget that show. It's not the same thing as a pile of gold, but um, I don't know. I, I think... For artists, that's that's the reward is that they were invested in something so deeply that I don't think the monetary reward was even a consideration for why they do it. You know, it was about they have to do this. And if somebody wants to come and see it, that's awesome. But it's not like it's not the reason I'm doing it. You know, it's like I've got to express myself in this way. And, you know, I felt the same way about writing. It's like, you know, I, I may never have anybody ever read my stuff, but I got to do this. I feel like I want I need to write. And, um, you know, if it brings you joy and happiness, then that's that's kind of like the main reason. Right. Like a lot of these bands that are making a pile of gold every night. I wonder how much they enjoy what they're doing anymore. You know, it's like it's almost like I, I'm running this business and I'm sort of obligated to do this because a lot of people will be out of work if I don't do it. And more and more I hear bands talking about it in that in those terms. I go, God, that sounds kind of sad. It's like a real sad reason to keep doing something. You know? <laughs> exactly. This is my crazy sort of big picture thing is like the Mick versus Keith narrative and that that battle. And so I feel like part of the squashing of the Robert Frank movie and everything like that, that was the beginning of Mick's, you know, sort of desire to kind of control the band. But it's always these two battling narratives, you know, and you've got the, the kind of Keith yeah. danger narrative. And then you've got Mick who wants to use some of that, but he also wants to be this important person right you know i think and respected so didn't he accept his knighthood and yeah. keith richards like told him to go fuck himself because of yeah. it or there's some you know maybe it's not true but you might know if it's true or not greg is that that's what i heard that a little bit behind in my knighthoods there chris i don't know uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm not quite don't keep up with sir paul or sir elton or whoever they are but <laughs> as we wind down here greg we ask um three questions the first question is should this film be lost and I guess I'll ask it in the context of, is it better served to be a bootleg that you got off of an Australian VHS tape and it's kind of your thing like my Jed Fair story? Or should it be a streamable film available to everyone in the world? Of course. I, I The latter. I mean, I don't see why more people wouldn't want to see this or should see it because it's just a wonder, you know, people who are unconvinced about the Stones um, maybe ought to see this they will be convinced. If they're not, then they probably will never like the Stones. But to me, it's like a great depiction of a great band at the peak of its powers. And, you know, it's one of those must-owns, to my mind, of like, if you want to be well-versed in music of the last, uh, you know, 50, 60 years, I mean, the Stones are in the in that mix. And this is a great representation of who they are, were at their best. Yeah. And you answered the second question, too, which is, should it be found meaning would you recommend to other people to see it sounds like you would and, and i'll add i've never been that big of a stones fan i like one sort of cluster of albums uh, a lot and exile is in the middle of that cluster but one of the things i always had against him was they always looked inept 
live or boring live to me. And this film, ladies and gentlemen, uh, even give me shelter. They look terrible live. I, I, I don't, I don't know why I just, just not getting into it, particularly compared to people like I can Tina Turner, but boy, ladies and gentlemen, I was like, okay, this is, this is the band. This is the energy. This is, this is why you would go see the stones live. Cause they really just cook beginning to end. And you get all of that energy and collaboration and stuff in this film. I couldn't agree more. And I think, um, I'm looking at the set list here again. Um, that ending, ending rush, you know, bye bye Johnny, rip this joint, jumping jack, flash, street fighting man. Those are like, it's like boom, boom, boom. They're like punching you in the face over and over again, like with this just like really blast of energy, and it's um, it's pretty exciting. I think people, I I'm, I'm curious because I I know there's people who will be unconvinced still. You know, they're sloppy. You know, the harmonies aren't really that good. Uh, I can't understand the words. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you could find fault with if you're kind of into a certain type of sound. You know, if you were a Steely Dan fan in the '70s, you probably are going to hate the Stones. Um, you know, and I love both bands, to be honest. You know, I think Steely Dance great, too. Yeah, but yeah. I could understand why somebody coming from that sort of perspective, you know, like, God, I love those 80s Brian Ferry records. You know, it's like, <laughs> God, they're going to think this just sounds like absolute shit. <laughs> but I, I just kind of love the raggedness of it. It's just like, it's loose. You know exactly where they're coming from. If you got the background in them, sort of that jazz blues nexus. I love hearing Keith talk about the records that influenced them, like the, the stuff that they putting their ears up to the, the speaker to hear a Jimmy Reed in like 1953 or something like that, how those guitars interacted of like a cheese sandwich melting. You know, he said those guitars would melt together and, you know, we just love that. How do they do that? You know, and they were trying to get that sound. That's, that's what it is. That's the magic. That sounds awful to somebody who's like, that doesn't sound too clean and precise to me. That sounds like slop. But I, I love that. I love that sort of spontaneous meld of minds and fingers and tones. Two tones become a third with the guitars coming together. And then that swing, you know, the way that rhythm guitar plays off the drums. Charlie is like just a magical drummer, man. He's just um, just a one quick anecdote about Charlie. Yeah. This yeah. is like on one of their more, more recent tours. Like the impression is they don't really give a fuck anymore. It's like they're, you know, it's going to be a big payday tonight, guys. Can't wait to get to the catering, you know, afterwards. <laughs> And then, so they're in the middle of the encore, and they're playing a long show. Easily enough, they could have just got to that last song and skipped out. And Charlie, like, points to his drum tech, and is, I'm pretty close, and I'm seeing that he's got a crack in his crash cymbal. And he wants the guy to, to replace it before they play the next song. You know, and they're rushing, because they're finishing this knock song, and they're going to go right in the next one. So the guy scrambles up on stage, gets the freaking crash, crash thing, and Charlie just kind of nods, and then, bam, he slams that thing right away, you know? He wanted to give the fans the full-on thing. He wasn't going to, like, cheat anybody, including himself. And it was just kind of like this attention to detail that you think these guys don't care about anymore. But, you know, he did care. You know, that's what I kind of love about those guys, that they have that. I remember almost, like, getting a little misty-eyed one time. They were clustered around this small stage they usually have like the second stage where there it's just the four of them or five of them on a stage off to the side right you know the ancillary stage the satellite stage and they look so tiny they look like these little guys you could just put them like in a thimble you know put them in your pocket and walk away with them and they were just like these little they're tiny their hips were like this long wide it was just like you know how does a human body fit into those pants you know it's like it's it's just they were just these little english guys and you meet them in person they're they're not larger than life they're little guys 
you know? How do they stay little, Greg? Is it cocaine? I, I need, need to try and get myself smaller. Everybody gains weight. They go in the opposite direction. Yeah, it's, like, it's incredible. The last question is, uh, should it be rewound? And really, should we watch it over and over again, I guess? And, and I guess I'd ask you, do you watch this frequently? Or did you just kind of pick it up when it, it was now available? You'd seen it on VHS way back in the day? Or, or is this something you'll revisit time and time again. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll rewatch it at some point. I saw it a bunch because I was writing about it. I'm going to have something on it on the website, the Coda Collection website in a few weeks. But so I watched it a lot and I kind of like was able to draw some nuances out of it that I missed the first time. And I think it's well worth watching because you do see the band interacting on stage, which is, you know, instructive. It was instructive to me. Like I learned some stuff about the band. You know, you mentioned Tina Turner earlier. It's interesting. There was a couple of moves in there that Jagger's like his body's moving just like Tina Turner. There was this way he sort of took his shoulders and kind of did this kind of, you know, little jive step. Then I'm going, that's a Tina Turner move right there. There's yeah. no way that would have happened if you hadn't seen her in 1969, you know. Definitely a sponge. You're like, yeah, just always on the lookout for a new move. And yeah adding it to his repertoire yeah i made that note about midnight rambler so it looked like he was ripping off james brown the way he was sort of crawling around on the stage and doing sort of all these gyrations and stuff and then i was like and then prince who was a you know a student of james brown little richard and stuff all sort of did very similar things like that that midnight rambler sequence compared to like what prince was doing on the 1999 tour or even like Darling Nikki and stuff like that. I was like, wow, that's really similar. So I don't know where they're both getting that influence from, if Prince is getting it from the Stones or they're both getting it from some other artist that they both studied. But I, I just, I thought that was pretty fascinating. You know, James Brown was on that, you know, that the famous 64, 65, 64, I think movie. Um, Tammy show. Yeah. And and that was, they got to study James up, up close and personal, but they were in, in, on all those things. They're like, you know, Brian Jones and those guys were like at the feet of Muddy Waters doing this TV appearance. And in fact, the Stones made it possible for, uh, actually it was Howlin' Wolf, I think. The, the reason Howlin' Wolf got on national television was because the Rolling Stones insisting that he, that he appear on the same show that they were being asked to perform at. They were like huddled at his feet, like, you know, the children at, around Santa Claus at Christmas, you know? Whatever you think of those guys, they actually did really champion a lot of their heroes, you know, the, the people that sort of influenced them. They never forgot them. They were constantly either having them open for them or recording their songs or talking about them in interviews, you know? I found out about a lot of stuff that preceded the Stones because of the way the Stones talked about those artists. So. Yeah, they're actually kind of the, the hipsters or the cool kids that actually somehow became massively successful, right? They, they really were devoted to the blues and were purists in a way. And yet somehow, like typically when you, it's like similar to indie rock, right? It's like, oh, no, I only like this type of music and I'm, you know, I, I'm, you know, I, I don't want to consider, you know, the other stuff. And you're just like, this is good. That other stuff is crap and sophomoric, you know, that, that kind of very judgmental, you know, elitist view or whatever. And, and, and yet they somehow they, they came from that background, but somehow turned into, you know, one of the biggest acts of all time. So it's a really interesting thing, you know, that that doesn't, well, I guess, you know, that, you know, it must have been the area because, you know, you could say David Bowie was like that too. I'm trying to think. Well, Kurt Cobain did it for Daniel Johnston and Greg Sage. And, you know, there, there yeah. were people who came out of the indie scene who then, or, and then he did it for the Meat Puppets too, right? He brought, yeah. he probably made yeah. their career a lot 
more robust by bringing them on that unplugged show. So yeah. there's examples of people doing it generation over generation. I, it just, yeah. it's such a machine now. I don't know, you just don't see it that often. The one one thing that I can always count on in an interview with an artist is if you talk about who they like, they light up. That's like when they really open up to you. They love talking about their heroes. Lou Reed loved talking about doo-wop and soul, early soul music. And it's like that would break the ice with him all the time. And he would be very specific about the stuff he loved and the sounds and stuff that you could just tell these guys were fans before they picked up an instrument. And they're still fans. You know, it's interesting you said about the purest thing with the blues, uh, with the Stones. The biggest purest of them all was Brian Jones. <laughs> and he was the guy who actually helped open up their sound in the 60s. He was the guy picking up the sitars and the marimbas and you know, all these kind of oddball instruments and really adding some cool touches to those uh, those singles that they had. You know, they were a really great singles band in the 60s once they got writing original stuff. Brian never wrote the songs, but he was a big part of the arrangement and how those songs sounded. And they were just great pop singles in large measure because the blues purist, you know, decided to branch out and do something other than just a straight up blues thing. Yeah, explore other obscure, you know, genres and or, you know, little yeah known genres and areas and instruments and everything like that. And so brought that in, yeah, to the... To the band so he was just continuing his role right and then unfortunately yeah. lost yeah. lost that role or lost got lost in that role or brian every great band sort of has that or you know like cliff burton did that for metallica and then when he died they sort of got routine um if i don't know maybe you guys don't like metallica i, I like the early stuff i think the first three Metallica records are really good. I actually heard them as kind of a punk rock band too in some ways. Yeah. Those early records. Yeah. They were nasty ass guys, man. They were not not that they were bad nasty people, but they, their sound was so intense. I thought they were great. They lost the plot, but then you know <laughs> Well they lost clips. That's what happens. That, that was when yeah. I think you know yeah, you clips. lose that catalyst in the band. They all seem yeah. to look up to him. Yeah. I could talk to you for two more hours, but it's my wife's <laughs> birthday and she's gonna kill me if I don't get to dinner tonight. I'm probably running a little late myself, but it was fun. I really enjoyed that. So I appreciate you guys asking me to uh, to join your your movie talk. And uh, obviously, we talked about a lot more than just movies, but that's that's what we like. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This was great. Yeah, sure, guys, thanks. appreciate it. Thanks. We talked a lot about heroes, and um, we should say that you're a hero of ours. I mean, the, you were a person writing about classic rock, indie rock, and you know, we're all from Chicago. We all grew up in Chicago. We all played in bands. Rick and I ran labels for years, and people like you who wrote about the stuff that you wrote about, you know, which was everything, not just the stuff that was above ground, but the stuff that was underground too. You know, that inspired us to continue to do what we did because people were listening, and and it actually turned us on to the stuff that we love today so you brought us a tremendous amount of joy and continue to you recommended this film and and sort of shared a whole new world of, of music and the rolling stones that i would have never have explored so thank you for not just today but for everything you've done i really appreciate it yeah and greg you wrote the f the first article about our band that you know my parents cut out of the newspaper right you know before then <laughs> It was, you know, on a Xeroxed fanzine, you know, yeah. so that was, that's, that's an amazing moment, you know, where your parents all of a sudden go, oh, this is, this is, this might be a real thing, right? It's, I don't know if they were, we went that yeah, far right. at that point, but it was still, it was, it was like, oh, okay, this is not just a weird I, uh, little blip or something like that. I, I feel you on that one because I, I, I was an editor before I became the, the critic, the critic, and, uh. I kept telling my grandmother that I worked at the Chicago Tribune, and she goes, your name's never in the paper. 
Like I, and she, I swear she didn't believe I worked there. And then when I had a byline, she goes, oh, you got that job you've been talking about for so long. But uh, thank you guys. I really appreciate it. It's very nice, very kind words. And uh, I, but it means a lot coming from you guys. So I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Lost and Found and Rewound is fully funded by Lost and Found and Rewound Foundation Funds. Lost and Found and Rewound does not use crowdfunding because our listeners have better things to do with their funding. There's no need to post reviews of Lost and Found and Rewound because our listeners have more valuable things to do with their time. In all sincerity, thank you for listening to the show. We truly appreciate it. Lotus Pod.